Good evening. Welcome again to uh, the COVID-19 version of Relational Theology. This is class number 10. Uh, we're going to be talking about the church that Jesus is building because of the uh, coronavirus. I'm sitting here in my uh, kitchen table with Mary and the picture of my family, my kids and grandkids, and uh, they're listening to me and Mary's little glass person that is my audience. So <laughs> if, we, if we get a bit weird, it's because we've been stuck in the house for eight weeks. <laughs> okay, back to a relational theology. Uh, the big picture we've been talking about is God restoring relationship and rulership. That which he originally intended that was lost at the fall. The whole story is him restoring that. We talked last week about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was the main focus of Jesus' teaching and preaching. Uh, it was by far uh, what he focused on more than anything else. But today we want to talk about the church. The church that Jesus is building. Matthew chapter 16, from verse 16 and 19. Simon Peter, but Jesus had, had asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Interesting that this is the first time Jesus mentions church. This is actually about six months before the crucifixion, two and a half years into his ministry. And this is the first time he mentions church. And it starts with a declaration. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, this declaration is from heaven. It's a revelation from heaven. You didn't figure this out on your own, but it's a revelation from heaven. Probably why it took him so long to get to church, because it has to be built on the understanding of who Jesus is. And then on this revelation, Jesus said, I will build my church. That's wonderful. It's in light of, in the context of the kingdom. But when we come down to it, what is Jesus' church? The church that he's building. A lot of different people give you all kinds of different definitions. Uh, it's things that are cultural, things that are historical. Uh, definitions are based on bits or pieces of the Bible. I want to take a look at what the Bible says about church. Here, when Jesus says, I will build my church, he's using the Greek word ekklesia. First time he uses it, this word literally means an assembly of people or a gathering. The little meaning of the word is called out. People who are called out to a gathering. They're gathering together. It's not actually church. It's actually assembly or gathering. Our English word church actually comes from a different Greek word, kyrios, which is Lord, which is translated into German kirke, which means church. And so that came much later. But when Jesus said it, he was talking about assembly of people. 
So the first thing we can understand is that by definition, Jesus's church is a gathering of people. That's pretty simple. But not every gathering of people is a church. You can go to a football game or a basketball game and there's people gathered. You can go to a Qantas club or anything. So not every gathering of people is a church. So what we can see is that the church can be more than a gathering, but it can't be less. So, I myself am not the church. I can be part of it, but not the whole. Because I can't gather with just myself. So it's, I'm not the church. But then Jesus says, I will build my church. Or my assembly. So he's actually talking about a gathering of people submitted to the lordship or rulership of Jesus. Bible says he's the head of the church. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23 says that he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 5 and verse 23, the second half. Christ is head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. And then one, and Colossians chapter 1, from verse 16 to 18. It says, For by him all things were created, talk about Jesus, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him. And for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So this is a gathering of people who are acknowledging the lordship or rulership of Jesus. He's the head. So what we can see is that the church is part of the kingdom. They're under the, the rulership of Jesus, but the church is not the kingdom. The kingdom of God is much bigger than the church, though all the people in the church are part of the kingdom. So the church is a gathering of people uh, submitted to the lordship of Jesus. But in uh, Matthew 18, in verse 20, it says, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So it's a gathering of people submitted to the Lordship of Jesus that's marked by his presence. Jesus is there. So it's marked by his presence or something of the presence of God. It's not just people gathered who are submitted to the Lordship to studying something, but it's marked by his presence. Now, let me say this. Matthew chapter 18, this scripture, is not a definition of the church. Because the word ecclesia is not used here. Where two or three are gathered is a different Greek word, sunegmenos, which means to come together, to gather. So it's not a definition of the church. It's not ecclesia. Uh, it's actually something else. This scripture is really about kingdom context of kingdom relationships. And so it basically is saying whenever any believers come together, even by accident, by accident, 
then I'll be there in their midst. There's something that is uh, identified of the, the presence of God when believers come together. And so that's a, that's a wonderful uh, promise and testimony that Jesus is there. Let me say this. This scripture is also not a comment on numbers. How many people does it take to make a church? Is it two or three? No, this is actually the context of kingdom relationships. It's more the quality of God's presence than the numbers. How do I know that, you ask? Well, if you go back to verse 16, it's talking about uh, a brother who sins against you. And it says, go to him alone. And then it says, uh, if he doesn't hear you, take two or three others. And so you have your brother and you and it, and one or two others. So minimum of three or four. If he doesn't hear that, then take it to the church. So is that making a statement that the church has to be a minimum of three or four people? No. That's not what this is about. It's not about numbers. It's not about we can define the church by two or three, wherever two or three gather. The church is much more than that. But what we can see is that wherever the church is, there is something of the presence of, of Jesus in their midst. The next point we can see about the church is that where they gathered wasn't the focus. The church is a gathering of people. It's not a building. Most of us know that. But where the church gathered wasn't really the focus. Let me give you a number of scriptures in Acts. Acts 2.46 says, So continuing daily and with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate the food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So they were uh, gathering in the temple and house to house. In Acts 5.12 it says that though the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's, in Solomon's porch. So they're all gathered together in Solomon's porch. Yet later in that chapter, verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. So they were in the temple and in everyone's house. And then Acts 19 and verse 9 says that they met for two years in the school of Tyrannus. This is talking about the church in Ephesus. As people got saved and they uh, withdrew the, the disciples and reasoning or meeting daily in the school of Tyrannus. Continued for two years and all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So you can't make an argument that the church has to meet in a house or it can't meet in a house or it has to meet in a temple or a large building or a school. Really, the focus is not on where the church gathers. It's the fact that the church gathers. Can the church gather under a tree? Of course it can. Someone asked me that when we first moved to Launceston in Australia. Talk about the church. They had uh, read a book that really... Uh, talked about how the church has gotten away from the original task. It became more focused on on uh, the actual building or the later the institution or the professional leaders and uh, said to me, can't the church just meet under a tree? And my thought was, of course they can. 
but they don't want to if they don't have to. <laughs> you know, uh, it's still the church, but it's not very comfortable if it rains. Uh, meeting under a tree doesn't make it any more the church than meeting in a building. So another ingredient when we look at what the Bible says about church is fellowship. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Fellowship. The word is koinonia. Literally means a sharing, an association, a partnership. It talks about people being knit together. Verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. He added them to people. There's a sharing, there's a committing. In fact, there's over 40 one another's in the New Testament. Now, it's very hard to care for one another and bear one another's burdens and instruct one another and pray for one another if we don't gather together. Okay, so that's part of the, the definition of church is this fellowship, this koinonia. It's something... Now, when you understand the, the times, when you understand that the Christians were a radically different group of people. In fact, at one point in Acts said, those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They, they didn't fit with the society. They were radically different than the religious Jews. They didn't fit with the Greeks who had a whole different mindset. They had a, a kingdom mentality. And so they were often persecuted. They were looked down upon. They were thrown in prison, as we see in, in Acts, but also in history. And so there's something about them saying, we are this group of people. It wasn't like just joining a club. It might cost you your life. Mm -hmm. And so this fellowship, this association, this caring for one another became a key ingredient. In a very real sense, we're a kingdom of priests and ministers. Ephesians 4.12 says, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the, of the ministry. So that it's the priesthood it's the kingdom of priests or ministers that together minister to one another in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 26 how is it then brother whenever you come together each of you has a psalm a teaching a tongue a revelation an interpretation let all things be done for edification now that when you come together word is again pseudonegmenos it's not ecclesia. It's not a definition of the church, but it's saying when you get together, whether it's in a gathering for the church or whether it's in a fellowship time, each one has something to, to offer. We are a kingdom of priests. It was never God's desire that a few people did everything and everyone else just watched. Now that might be the expression in a certain gathering of the church, but other gatherings that need to be much more of people's participation. Also, that every person is filled and led by the Spirit. We see Jesus saying to his disciples, but also to the, the church, that we're to be filled with the Spirit. Led by the Spirit. Why? Because we're the priesthood of believers. We're the kingdom of priests. We're the ones who are actually doing the work of the ministry and so we need the Holy Spirit. So in other words, we can say the church, which is people, 
is led by the Spirit of God. And so that's a key. The church is led by the Spirit of God. The people. But us together. That doesn't mean it's a democracy. It means it's a theocracy. Jesus is the head, but he gives us his Spirit. But the Bible does mention leadership. In Acts 14, in verse 23, it says, So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Not just some of the churches, but every church. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul's introduction to the the uh, Philippians, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So we see this expression of church. Now here's where I have to be a bit creative because we're not together and I can't draw on the whiteboard. So I have to paint a word picture. I want you to, this is what the church looks like in one illustration. If you make a big circle on your paper, and on the inside of the top of the circle, write saints. So the church is this group of people, the circle of believers who are saints. Every one of us who are followers of Jesus, who've come back into relationship with him and submitted to his, his rulership, have been made righteous, we're considered saints. It's not a few people who did certain things. It's every believer is a saint. And then, as Ephesians said, the uh, saints do the work of the ministry. So there's some things that saints do. Now, inside your circle, on the right-hand side, about draw another circle about a quarter of the size of the circle that you drew. So it's on the inside, and one a wall of your second circle coincides with the, the big circle that, that you've drawn before. And so not only are there saints... But there are deacons. So inside the top of that little circle, write deacons. Now deacons are also saints. They do the work of the ministry. But in addition to that, they do something else, which is shepherding. Caring for people. Now, all believers care for people. It's not just the deacons. Part of the... The ministry of the saints is all the 41 and others that we have. But there's also these deacons who help with that. And then if you do the same thing, draw a smaller circle, maybe half the size of the circle within the circle that you mark deacons, a smaller circle on the right-hand side, also coinciding with one the outer wall. And inside that circle, write elders. Elders are also saints. They also do the ministry of shepherding, but in addition to that, they help lead the church. Now, if you've drawn that the way I have, you have three circles, and if you squint, they look like an eyeball. And if you write just outside the circle, Jesus, part of the leadership is to keep all of us focused on Jesus. Following Jesus. Jesus is the head. Okay, why do I draw it that way? Because it's not hierarchy, it's not over. It's not somebody, an individual. It's Jesus in front. 
And so we're all following him. So the church that Jesus is building has all these ingredients. It's a gathering of people that's focused on him, worshiping him. It's, uh, it has to do with his presence. It has to do with, not with where we meet, but that we do meet. Uh, it has to do with some other ingredients, kononia, uh, being led by the Spirit. Has some leadership, but all those are secondary. So here's the next question. How is Jesus building his church? How is Jesus building his church? Jesus said, I'll build my church. We don't want to find ourselves working against Jesus. But So it'd be important for us to realize how is Jesus building his church? Let's get behind what he's doing. Not just the church, but how he's building it. So let me throw this idea at you. Is his focus kingdom advancement or church growth? See, church growth has become a major focus in the last 40 years. After living in Australia for 16 years, Mary and I returned to the States to be part of planning a church uh, in Denver, Colorado. When we went there, I was given a number of books and all of them were on church growth. There were conferences on church growth. People were telling me about all these conferences and every focus was on church growth. And it kind of hit me, what? Well, where is the kingdom? Where is kingdom advancement? It was primarily church growth. So I want to just take a look at those two things. Kingdom advancement and church growth. And just see a little bit of how the focus has, I believe, shifted a little bit from what Jesus is about. Kingdom advancement. If we look at Jesus, he preached the gospel of the kingdom. So kingdom advancement is people with a focus on preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The rulership of Christ. Come to Jesus. He's the one who saves us. So we need to equip the saints and how to introduce people to Jesus. Yet church growth preaches a gospel of the church. Come to church. Invitation Sundays. We need to be looking at kingdom advancement or church growth. Secondly, kingdom advancement, the focus is on Jesus the head. His plan. His glory. His DNA. Church isn't my idea, it's his. It looks like him if he's the head. But the focus on church becomes a little bit different. It becomes our distinctive. What makes us different as a church? Our reputation. How will we look as a church? Our DNA. Thirdly, kingdom advancement is about equipping saints and leaders for the kingdom. That's the heart of equipping and releasing. We want to see saints and leaders equipped and released in ministry. 
where church growth sometimes becomes equipping saints and leaders for the church. It becomes a holding on to. We don't want to release people. Oh, don't go plant churches because you'll take away from our leadership. Kingdom advancement, number four. Where the kingdom advanced advance through Jesus' presence and the supernatural. Jesus came to overthrow the works of the devil. We talked about that last week when we talked about uh, kingdom authority. The authority that he's given every believer to uh, heal the sick and cast out demons. And so that the kingdom is advanced through Jesus' presence. He shows up. Church growth takes place through advertising and marketing. It's really what makes us distinctive and better. A.W. Tozer once said that you, in some churches you could remove the Holy Spirit and nobody would know that he wasn't present. Because we've done a good job of focusing on other things. Number five, kingdom advancement. Those who with a heart for kingdom advancement embrace others as allies in the kingdom. But those with a focus on church growth look at others as competitors. There's this idea that we have to increase our market share. There's only so many Christians and we have to increase our market share to, to grow our church. Not realizing that there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of unsaved people that the kingdom needs to touch, that Jesus wants to reach. So it's not about marketing and make, showing what our distinctive is. It's not competing with other churches. It's how do we together see the kingdom advance. We're allies. Even if people might approach it a little bit different. Kingdom advancement number six sees the big picture. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So the decisions are made in light of the big picture. Does this advance the kingdom? Where church growth focus. All the decisions are made in the light of us. Does this grow our church? Does this advance our name? Not the kingdom. And so it's a subtle shift over the last 40 years that have taken the, some of the uh, emphasis away from the kingdom of investment and put it on church growth. And uh, we have to be careful that we don't fall into that trap and miss what Jesus is doing. Let me, uh, let me tell you a story. So my testimony. Uh, Two weeks before our wedding, when I married lovely Mary, uh, I was training with an organization that dealt with delinquent kids, and we did a two-week training in Chicago. We lived in the suburbs of Los Angeles, California at the time, and this two-week training was in Chicago. And so I went there to do the training, and uh, I thought I was training to to do something with delinquent kids. God had a different plan. Uh, while we did do that training, there was something much bigger. Uh, 
when we got there, we, we were going to be there for two weekends, and the organizers of this training had scheduled us to go to a certain church on the second Sunday we were there, and they told us that this was the best church in Chicago. And, uh, man, I had high expectations. Well, the week before, the first Sunday we were there, one of the guys in our small team group was from Chicago, and he invited us all to his church. And we went there, and uh, it was just on fire. The worship was fantastic. People just loved Jesus. Uh, they literally danced in the aisle to bring their offering. Uh, it was just, it was a bit beyond my expectate, my experience at the time, but there was just something of the presence of God that was fantastic. A lady in the church invited our whole team, all seven of us, to her house for lunch. Now, I don't know if the guy on our team had organized that or what, but I just, it was fantastic. But in the back of my mind was this, but next week is the best church. I just had this, well, I'm tell, trying to tell you this, is that I had really high expectations for the next week. And so we go to this church, inner city church in in uh, Chicago the next week. And uh, as we enter, there's these pews with really high backs and sides that isolate you from everyone else with people's name. They actually bought the pew up in the front, the, the preacher goes up a stair and stands up high above everyone looking down. I guess he had to to see over the backs of the pew to see the people behind. Uh, there was a couple of hymns, but, but none of them were about Jesus. There was a sermon that wasn't actually from the Bible, it was, but it was nice stuff, be good to one another. And, uh, and nobody was friendly. Nobody even said hi to us. We're visiting this church. And I was, to say I was disappointed is an understatement. I walked out of the church after it was over and went over to the corner of the parking lot away from my team and I was just angry. I was livid. The church is ridiculous and, and how can they call this church? And they said this was the greatest church. Well, the reason they considered it the greatest church was that they had a social worker and a lawyer on their staff that helped people. And so really, they while they were doing some good stuff, it didn't show up on the the service, but I was just angry and I was just complaining to God and I and, and almost like, Lord, how in the world can you put up with this stuff and this is ridiculous and how could they say this is the best church and and uh, in the midst of that, for maybe the first time in my life, I felt like God spoke to me clearly and expecting Jesus to agree with me with all this anger, I felt like he said, yes, but she's my bride and I love her. And I just fell apart. And I began, my heart was broken. I began to, to weep. Not only with Jesus' love for his church, it began to hit me that no matter who, he still loved. But also the fact that I had been so negative about his bride. And I began to weep and I cried the whole day, about eight hours. I could not stop crying. I could not get over, couldn't eat. I had a picture of a church that was on fire and a church that for all intents and purposes was dead. And Jesus said, but she's my bride. And it made me realize that there was much more. That began 
a many year training where I began to look at what is the church and what does Jesus feel about his church and uh, didn't realize it at the time I do looking back but that was probably one of the most significant moments in my life uh, rather than becoming a complainer my thought was okay Jesus how do we build your church And then many years later, God spoke to Mary and I about coming to Launceston in Tasmania and to a young couple with a similar heart, Tim and Kate Oliver, who had the same conviction about a church that's focused on Jesus and not on people, not on advancing our name, that just has been a, a delight. So after all that, what is the church that Jesus is building? I believe it's a gathering of people who love Jesus, who see him as the head and the focus. He's the one who is worshipped and celebrated. He's the one who gets all the glory and honor. It's not about celebrities or the name of ministers. It's about Jesus. It's a gathering of people who submit to his authority and his word. The word, the whole word, and nothing but the word. Not pieces that they like, not choosing and selecting, not proof texts, but the word. It's a people who are filled and led by the Spirit of God. Seeing his presence manifest in the supernatural and all the gatherings, whether it's together or in homes or running into people on the street. There's something of the supernatural. It's a people who love one another as Christ has loved them. Encouraging, sharing, caring for each other in reality. A kingdom of priests equipped and released in the work of the ministry, led by leaders who set an example not who exercise some sort of authority over others. A group of people who, because of their love for their king, want to see his kingdom advanced in all the world. A people who preach the gospel of the kingdom, who make disciples for Jesus and plant churches in every village, town, and city. That church is made up of people like you. If you're a follower of Jesus... If these characteristics apply to you, they apply to the church where he's added you. See, it's not some cookie-cutter mold that he presses us into by some organizational mandate or pressure. It's his dream, his vision, that he lovingly impresses on the hearts of those who love him and follow him. She's my bride, and I love her. You're his bride, and he loves you. The church down the street is his bride, and he loves her. They might express it differently, but we're allies for the kingdom. We're expression of his bride, and we're going to live together for eternity, loving the king. Lord, when we've done anything less, would you correct our thinking? 
where we focused on the wrong things, where we've defined your church wrongly or whether we've been hurt and pressed into a mold would you set us free? Lord, we don't want to continue as part of the problem, but part of the solution. We want to build your church as you're building your church. We want to work along with you and build the church that you're building. And we want to be the church that you're building. We want to be the example to the world. By this will all men know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Lord, fill us again with love for you and love for one another that we build the church that you're building. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's the end. God bless you, and I hope you have a wonderful evening.